With her taste for the finer things and her unapologetic command of the stage, you might think that Cleopatra is something of a diva. Well, now Shakespeare's larger-than-life Egyptian queen is getting the full operatic treatment in San Francisco. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger Director. John Adams is one of America's most celebrated contemporary composers. When he was starting out in the 1980s, Adams was associated with minimalist composers like Philip Glass and Steve Reich. But with operas such as Nixon in China, The Death of Klinghoffer, and Dr. Atomic, Adams has proved a composer of exceptional range and emotional depth. And he's become known for something else, championing recent American history as material worthy of the opera. The subject of his most recent opera is a bit of a departure, Antony and Cleopatra, commissioned by the San Francisco Opera for its centennial season. Adams wrote the libretto himself, based largely on Shakespeare's play. Of course, that involved a substantial amount of cutting. Turning a five-act play into a two-act opera meant whole scenes and characters got the hook. But as we'll hear, it also required Adams to pick up his pen and write new lines in the style of Shakespeare. John Adams' Antony and Cleopatra is currently running at the San Francisco Opera. Its matinee performance this Sunday, September 18th, will be available for streaming live and on demand for a limited period of time. Adams joined us from his home in the Bay Area to talk about Antony and Cleopatra last month when the opera was in the middle of rehearsals. Here's John Adams as interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Let's start with the music, uh, as in the soundscape or the musical style of this opera. I wanted to ask you this because it's such an epic story that you're telling. It has multiple locations, Rome and Egypt and on a ship. And I wondered how you conceived of how Rome sounds as opposed to Egypt. I mean, do different instruments signal the different locations and the opposing worlds, or how do you evoke that musically? You know, I try to evoke the mood, not so much the location. And Rome, as we first encounter it, is uh, in a frenzy. Caesar is terribly upset because of Pompey and and the... uh, possibility of a civil war and the pirates that are taking advantage uh, of the situation. And Caesar is profoundly annoyed that Antony is uh, off drinking Mai Tais uh, in Alexandria and having a good time with, uh, <laughs> with Cleopatra. So I set up a very kind of nervous musical sense there. And then in that same scene, we have Antony and, and his uh, staff uh, arrive in Rome and a, a very chilly moment when Caesar and Antony uh, say, you sit, no, you sit, no, you. <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> so musically, um, I am mostly concerned with the emotional interior of, of the characters. And of course, what drew me to this story was the fact that Cleopatra is to my mind, the most thoroughly developed female character in all of Shakespeare. She is obviously a very intelligent woman. She had enormous political savvy just to stay alive in Ptolemaic Egypt. 
And she's a narcissist, uh, but she's also a deeply human and very vulnerable woman in love. Well, we've been talking a lot about the music, so let's, why don't we listen to a clip now? And this is an excerpt from the final scene. Could you give us a sense then of your scoring process for this huge scene? How you, how do you begin to translate these these feelings inspired by this heightened, tragic, emotional moment into a musical feeling? I've always been obsessed with literature. Neither of my parents were able to go to college because when they were in their twenties, it was the worst part of the depression, and so they valued the arts and particularly literature. And when I grew up, they were always sitting at the kitchen table with a cup of coffee reading. So for me, poetry, literature, drama has has been uh, probably principal inspiration for my music. <clears throat> I've set Walt Whitman, Emily Dickinson, Latin American poets I've set in Spanish and uh, John Donne. And of course, my two first operas Nixon and China and The Death of Klinghoffer have, to my mind, some of the greatest libretti ever written by Alice Goodman. So using a great text, which of course Shakespeare is, stimulates me, not just in terms of the setting or the mood, but actually the words themselves, the, the shape of a phrase, the, where the accent is, what the sound of the, of the word is, they all suggest musical gestures, melodic arcs, and uh, I follow those through and create, you know, a large-scale dramatic uh, musical structure sometimes as long as 20 minutes. The final scene of this opera is over 20 minutes long. Can you give me an example of a line that, that, that hit you and, and how, you, how it inspired you and what it inspired you to compose? You know, an example of how the language just suggested the music was, of course, the famous barge scene when Eno Barbus describes how Antony and Cleopatra first met. Uh, of course, I had, to, I had to compress it drastically because, you know, music moves so slowly compared to uh, spoken drama 
and anybody who loves this barge scene to death, as, as I do, will, will probably be offended at what was left out. But I'll just uh, I'll read it and, and, t- t- and describe what I did with it. He says, the barge she sat in like a burnished throne burned on the water. The poop was beaten gold, purple the sails, and so perfumed that the winds were lovesick with them. The oars were silver, which to the tune of flutes kept stroke, and made the water which they beat to follow faster, as amorous of their strokes. For her own person it beggared all description. She did lie in her pavilion, cloth of gold, of tissue, or picturing that Venus where we see the fancy outwork of nature. From the barge, a strange invisible perfume hits the sense of the adjacent wharfs. The city cast her people out upon her, and Antony, enthroned in the marketplace, did sit alone. She made great Caesar lay his sword to bed. He plowed her, and she cropped. You say Antony must leave her utterly, but I say never. He will not. He will to his Egyptian dish again. He'll never leave her. You know, it's just a dream of the most glorious and sensuous imagined vision of beauty and, and uh, you know, obvious a certain stagey quality of this woman who was really uh, pulling all the stops to get Anthony's attention. And so I, I was just... Uh, bedazzled by this language and by this image. That's what's so wonderful about Shakespeare is it's the combination of the language, the emotional depth of it, and um, the actual imagery that it evokes in your head. And to come full circle, bring us into the music, your musical thoughts? Well, in this case, uh, I, I could have imagined something that was very grandiose, you know, with trumpets and flutes to imitate the, the suggestion of flutes. But I opted for something that was very different. There's, there's kind of a slinky groove going on. Um, I wanted to get something that was actually very sexy. Because she's seductive. She's seducing. She, you know, she was, she was doing that aspect of her personality. I mean, in the course of this opera, we see so many shades of Cleopatra. And I have to say that um, the great scholar Janet Adelman, whose book, uh, The Common Liar, was one of the most important ones for me when, when studying to prepare for this libretto and this opera, she revealed to me in, in such a wonderfully deep way all of the subtleties and the complexities of Cleopatra's personality. I can only imagine how much you read in your preparation for this, but I do want to know if you started uh, with secondary sources or do you go straight to the text when you, when you start with, an, with Shakespeare? Uh, do you watch any movies or other operas? What's your process? I read, and as you know, Shakespearean scholarship is 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 just a, a Mount Everest, and one has to decide who the most meaningful uh, scholars are because because you can get overwhelmed by it. Um, and I can by cite, the fire hose, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I can cite several writers that meant a great deal to me. Janet Adelman, she was a scholar who actually taught uh, in the. University of California, right here in Berkeley, where I live. 
Harold Goddard. He was a, a professor for years, I think at Swarthmore College, and he uh, issued uh, two volumes of uh, lectures on Shakespeare that um, were called to my attention by my longtime collaborator, Peter Sellers, and Northrop Fry, of course, just a delightful and wonderfully penetrating and very witty uh, writer on Shakespeare. And non-literary sources? And I'm asking because I know that the, the Met commissioned Samuel Barber to adapt Anthony and Cleopatra, of course, in 1966, and that was such a big deal. It opened their new Lincoln Center venue. Did that figure in any way in, in your thoughts? I was, of course, aware that Samuel Barber had his own opera on Anthony and Cleopatra. I went out of my way to stay away from that. I, I did not listen to it, and I did not even look at the libretto because I just didn't, I didn't want to be influenced either negatively or positively. I had my own mm. very special take on the opera. Um, maybe someday I'll look at the Barber opera. And, of course, it was out of no disrespect uh, for Barber. It was just simply... I had my own Antony and Cleopatra, and I wanted to stay with it. Your previous operas have been mostly on American subjects. The, the L.A. Earthquake and Ceiling and Sky, Nixon in China, Dr. Atomic about Robert Oppenheimer. Uh, you've also done mythical or biblical stories. But what brought you to Shakespeare then at this point in your career? The opera that I composed before Antony and Cleopatra which I wrote in 2016-17, was about the California gold rush. It was called Girls of the Golden West, and it was based on true events, some of them really disturbing, having to do with racism and violence during the gold rush. But one of the things that we discovered in research was that a popular form of entertainment during that period was reciting Shakespeare. And Lola Montez, uh, the very provocative actress, uh, I guess you could call her a performance artist, who started uh, her career as a, a girlfriend of King Ludwig in Bavaria and was chased out of England, ended up uh, performing in uh, California during the gold rush. I set, uh, as part of that uh, gold rush opera, a couple of scenes from Macbeth, and I found that I loved working with Shakespeare. asked to compose an opera to celebrate the centennial of the San Francisco opera. I proposed Antony and Cleopatra, which has been a play that's been especially uh, dear to me throughout as long as I can remember. What did you love about setting Shakespeare? I think that the combination of the psychological depth, the emotional power and the beauty of the language all come together to stimulate my musical and creative imagination. And of course, in the case of Anthony and Cleopatra, these, this couple appeals to me because they both have backstories. They're not Romeo and Juliet. 
Antony has already had a very long and distinguished career as a military commander, and he just wants to leave that behind him. And I don't think it's generally known, but his relationship with Cleopatra went on for quite a while, and they had children together. And as I also said earlier, that uh, Cleopatra is um, so rich, a dramatic character. Well, they both are, really. I wrote the role of Antony for the great Canadian baritone Gerald Finley. He is just on fire in the rehearsals that I've seen this month. Um, he loves what I've done for him and the vicious moment when he suspects that Cleopatra has been uh, betraying him and his paranoia and his anger takes over. I really have rarely seen anything like it on, on the operatic stage. I can't believe I wrote it myself. It's so uh, powerful. Well, they do horrible things to each other. Well, in the case of Cleopatra, she was a, a woman in love, but she was also a queen. And she saw, especially after the Battle of Actium, she saw the decline of Egypt, and she knew that she had to surrender to Octavian, and she was forced to negotiate as best she could. She wanted to save her children, and she wanted to save as much of Egypt as she could. And Rome was pretty brutal, as we know. Rome moved into any distant country with its enormous technology and its uh, brutal armies. You know, it's, I've been in the later stages of preparation of this opera while I've been watching what's going on in the Ukraine now. And the brutality of the Russians as they come in has reminded me very much of how Rome treated conquests. You're anticipating a question I had for you, which is that that when I talk to actors, they often ha talk about the elaborate backstories that they create for their characters, which never show up in the actual production and the end product. Of course, you're working with Shakespeare, so there's a lot of story there already. But I did wonder if you work that way, too. And, for instance, one of the big questions in this uh, story is, why did Cleopatra turn her fleet around and abandon the battle? And no one can ever know why that happened. The, the historical record is silent on that. But did you feel that you had to answer it for yourself in order to write the scenes that Antony and Cleopatra have after the battle? You know, historical precision and dramatic necessity don't always go together. <laughs> That's and, an and understatement. I, you know, Shakespeare knew that. If you compare Plutarch to Shakespeare, you can see where Shakespeare needed to massage the story for, uh, you know, very important dramatic reasons. Yeah, the question of, of why Cleopatra turned her ships around has, has you know, puzzled people. Um, but from my point of view, what actually was the reason is less important than the fact she did that and that Antony uh, completely destroyed himself by following her, as Shakespeare says, like a doting mallard. <laughs> this is unbelievable image, really, just an utterly so humiliating Im image. Yes. <laughs> And, you know, this is the very end of Act One, you know, because of the standards and the requirements of contemporary opera and the short attention spans of American audiences. I, I had to boil this enormous epic play 
down to two acts. And so act one ends with the Battle of Actium and the absolutely crushing, humiliating defeat for Antony. And for the entire second act, he's a, a man who can't get anything right. Uh, can't even do his own suicide right. And um, I can identify with that. Uh, you know, I can identify with that sense of uh, being an older man who keeps misfiring and getting things wrong. Oh, well, that that does lead us right to this huge frustration that you were talking about, which is that you adapt Shakespeare to an opera, there are just so many words and so many scenes and so many characters, and, and that doesn't translate well into the form. And singing takes longer than speaking, so it makes it even harder, I imagine. So where do you start with cutting Shakespeare and writing the libretto? And I imagine there's always these famous soliloquies and lines, and there's tension between leaning into the crowd pleasers too much or leaving too many of them out. How did you think about that? In terms of uh, trying to find the essence of the story, it was a matter of strategy. You know, what, what is the story we're going to tell? What are we going to focus on? And I think what meant the most to us was obviously the relation between the two titular characters, not only their love affair, but also the relation of power, because each represents uh, two different civilizations, one ascendant, Rome, and the other in decline, Egypt. So, you know, there were hard things. There were things that had to end up on the cutting room floor that just broke my heart. The way that in the true drama, you know, Barbas and Antony have their breakup is, is incredibly poignant, but there just wasn't a great deal of time for that. And there was a wonderful party scene on board Pompey's ship where everybody gets drunk, <laughs> except for, of course, Caesar, who is just too serious and sober. Too uptight. And, yeah. yeah. Too <laughs> uptight. It's it's wonderful how Shakespeare really didn't like Caesar very much. <laughs> I certainly enjoyed employing that. But um, in the end... I'm very happy what, what we came up with as a libretto. I, I, I know that there were some people who are concerned that audiences today would have difficulty with Shakespearean language. But, you know, the one thing that we can do with music that you can't do in straight drama is that music can set the emotional tone instantly. And I can, just through a change of harmony or the direction of a, of a melodic line, I can tell a great deal that would take pages of text to say the same thing. And that's where I have this power as a composer that a playwright doesn't have. Yes, and you're scoring. So I imagine your scoring dictates, in many cases, what text you do include or cut. And and lines you repeat. And, and I'm thinking of what you've written about how you often have to leave some of the best lines of text unset because the musical statement has already reached a closure, for instance. And and you alluded earlier to the the, the editing room floor. It, it reminds me of something your librettist Alice Goodman said, that bleeding chunks of her lines end up there. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Well, not only do I have to cut things, but this would probably appall you, but I actually had to add things because sometimes I'll have a, you know, a couplet of Shakespeare, but the music demands more. Uh, 
And so I found myself actually writing my own lines and having to fold them in with the Shakespeare. I think I did a pretty good job, and I would say only a Shakespeare scholar or somebody with a search engine would be able to tell them apart. So do you mean you're writing a kind of Shakespeare-esque, John Adams, Shakespeare-esque line there, or are you using other source material? I know that you use Plutarch and Virgil, too. I did. Uh, I'll give you an example. I had to set up the fact that after their Antony marries Octavia, that Caesar, to get rid of them, sends them off to Athens. And the, the scene four opens with Antony very angry because he's stuck in Athens and he's away from Cleopatra and he's getting bored with Octavia. And uh, he says, nay, nay, Octavia, not only that, your brother hath most subtly estranged me, dispatched us here to drowsy Athens, disjoined from Rome, remote, exiled, apart, and uninstructed of his schemes, while we here count the wasted hours and linger aimless, bereft of our capacity. That is John Adams' faux Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very impressed you're owning up to it here on our podcast. <laughs> we'll, we'll see what the comments say. Um, well, switching gears, I, I have read your memoir, and uh, I'd love to go back to your first inklings of, of a desire to become a composer, because I was totally tickled to read about the first albums you were obsessed with. And I don't know, you were, you were how old? Seven? seven or so. Um, one was Tchaikovsky doing the 1812 Overture, and that's not such a surprise there. But the other is Bozo the Clown conducts favorite circus marches. <laughs> this was a seminal recording for you. Did you model your conducting on Bozo? <laughs> well, I think, uh, you know, perhaps uh, someone who knows my complete works could see some genetic hint there uh, in, in my inspirations that, you know, I'm a composer who actually is not afraid of humor in my music. And I have to say, you know, I, I came of age during the most kind of dour, grim period in contemporary music when composers were very, was sort of obliged to write dark, difficult complex music. And if you had any humor, it had to be bitter irony. And I have to say that after hearing what I did for Caesar in Antony and Cleopatra, you know, it was interesting. I needed to have a statement that Caesar would sing that expresses Rome's complete manifest destiny, its, its dominant culture and how it's taking over. And there really wasn't anything extended in the Shakespeare. So I went to Virgil and I took some of book six and some of book 10, I believe it was, of the Aeneid. And I used the somewhat antiquated translation by John Dryden because it was closer to the Shakespeare in tone. Mm. And I said it almost as if it were a Donald Trump rally, you know, Caesar's hailing the greatness of Rome and his own greatness. And there's a crowd that I have the chorus on the stage and they're yelling and screaming and applauding him. And there's something that's both rather humorous and also very alarming about it. Ha. Huh. Well, there is so much emotion in your work. And you were just describing how you came of age in this modern period with atonal compositions and a lot of seriousness and, and a somewhat 
you describe in your memoir how often you were bored, actually, <laughs> sitting through uh, some very great work then, because being bored was kind of part of the ethos. But then you had this, what sounds like a big breakthrough in defining what kind of work you want to do. And it happened while you were driving through the Sierras listening to Wagner back in 1976. Do, do you think you can take us back to that that time and that moment and what it meant for you? I came of age uh, as a composer during a, you know, an exceptionally difficult time in contemporary music. And, you know, I, like most young artists, creative artists, was trying to find my voice. And I was very influenced by, you know, what was the au courant style of the time, which didn't really appeal to me very much. And I did have this as a kind of a, I call it a Saul on the road to Damascus moment when I was driving through an exceptionally beautiful part of the California Sierras and listening to um, some of the music from Goethe Damerung. And what struck me about it was its emotional sincerity. And it gave me great courage to, uh, you know, believe in my own emotional sincerity. And, you know, for a while that became very controversial amongst music critics and my own colleagues who thought I was a a sellout um, because I was composing music that really was about communication of emotions. And I think by now, 30, 40 years later, people understand what I was doing and maybe even appreciate it because, uh, let's face it, Music is, above and beyond all else, about communicating emotion. And it's so intuitive how you had it, too. You're driving along there and you're listening, and and all of a sudden you say, I just said out loud, he cares. Then you asked yourself, who, who, who cares? Yes. I mean, is this coming straight out of your your subconscious, kind of? You're having a conversation with yourself in the car? Mm. Oh, yes. Well, we... Artists tend to talk to ourselves a lot. You know, I wrote about that in my book mostly, I guess maybe as an instructional paradigm. You know, I'm I'm talking to younger people, talking to composers and artists and poets, because when you're very young, you're very impressionable. And your worst critics and the ones that drive you crazy are not necessarily your teachers or journalists. Uh, Your worst critics are your colleagues. You know, I mean, those are the ones you you care about the most, and they're the ones that you want to impress. And um, it's very easy to get freaked out. I'm always in touch with younger composers. And I think, actually, right now, uh, it's a pretty positive time uh, to be a composer. It seems like everybody I know is writing an opera. And, you know, that's a good sign. It, It means people are optimistic about the chances of getting in their music heard. And stylistically, people are not as locked down and and rigid as they were when when I was starting out. Well, I think that's really true. And and I'm here in Los Angeles, and I uh, have to say that the most recent operas I've experienced were all by Yuval Sharon. And uh, one in particular I loved uh, took place all over Los Angeles as audience members were, we were driven around in these different cars. It's called Hopscotch. Yes. Uh, it does uh, prompt me to ask you whether, given the money or the commission or the will or whatever, 
what experiments would you still like to do or new departures from from the uh, classical music format or the classic opera do you dream of? I think I'm most interested in doing something on a small scale. Anthony and Cleopatra turned out to be pretty much a, a mega production. I mean, how can you not have this story which spans over three continents and has all these characters and all these very complex situations? Oh, it's not, a Cecil B. DeMille, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it's grand opera, and, and I'm digging it. It's, I'm enjoying watching it. But I have only one stage work that that's small. It's a show that I wrote with lyrics by the great African-American essayist and poet June Jordan called I Was Looking at the Ceiling and I Saw the Sky. And it actually takes place in Los Angeles right during the Northridge earthquake. For that, I wrote uh, about 20 pop songs. And boy, it was really hard writing pop songs because you have to get to the hook within the first couple of seconds. And, you know, I'm a composer who usually gives myself, you know, five, 10, 20 minutes to get get off the ground. So it was a wonderful experience. And I think I would like to do something small again, not necessarily pop songs, but maybe a dr dramatic piece that's, uh, you know, portable, that doesn't cost millions of dollars and, uh, and maybe could be done on the back of a truck, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Um, I can't wait to see the opera. I oh, can't wait you. to hear the opera. <laughs> and me too. It. Me too. <laughs> and thank you so much. I really, really Certainly. enjoyed it. Great pleasure. Take care. You bye bye. Too. John Adams' Antony and Cleopatra is running at the San Francisco Opera through October 5th, 2022. A live stream performance will be available at 2 p.m. Pacific time this Sunday, September 18th, and for streaming on demand for 48 hours beginning Monday, September 19th at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern time. For information, see sfopera.com. Audio from Girls of the Golden West and Antony and Cleopatra in this episode came courtesy of the San Francisco Opera. The clip from Girls of the Golden West was performed by soprano Julia Bullock as Dame Shirley with the San Francisco Opera Orchestra conducted by Grant Gershon. In clips from Antony and Cleopatra, the role of Cleopatra was sung by Amina Edris and Antony by Gerald Finley. The conductor was Unsun Kim. This episode was produced by Matt Frassica. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Evan Marquardt at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a positive review on your podcast platform of choice. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.